Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. We have, uh, for the last couple of weeks, been in a series um, looking at how people grow in their faith. Um, How you and I can become the person that God designed each of us to be. Uh, The person that he had in mind when he thought you up, when he thought me up. And the key to this we've been talking about over the last couple weeks is the key to this is learning to live in the flow of the Holy Spirit. That God's Spirit is available, that is constantly flowing and available for us to learn and rely on and be encouraged and and helped and empowered by. And so as we've been going through this whole series, um, we've been talking about what it means to live in the flow of the Holy Spirit. And that is not something that is mystical, by the way. Sometimes people think it's just some big mystical kind of thing. It is very practical. It starts with the rebirth of your own spirit. As you give your life to Christ, it says he puts his spirit within you. And, and it, so it starts with that rebirth that we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then from that comes the renewal of our minds, that we learn to change the way that we are thinking as His Spirit moves through us and as we spend our time in God's Word, that the best place to get an idea of how God thinks and how God acts and how God uh, wants for us um, is through His Word. And so we renew our minds um, through Scripture. And then it's the redirecting of our desires, that we all have desires, and they're not necessarily bad. They are meant for good, and the desires are meant to lead us toward God. But when they get distorted, when we mismanage desire, and it gets out of whack, it takes us out of the flow of the Spirit. And the answer to that is as soon as we discover that we're out of the Spirit's flow, to get back in, to come back and receive His grace and His forgiveness and start uh, afresh with Him. So today we're going to talk about the fourth part of this, and it's redemptive relationships. Because God uses people to form people. That's how he does it, um, through one another. And nowhere has that become more evident than in families, and which is appropriate for Mother's Day because it's really in a family that you learn to become who you are. Um, it's in the interaction, in the family dynamics that that happens. And the same thing is true in God's family. Ephesians 3, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church these words, his prayer for them. I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray out of the glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That in the same way that in your natural family, um, you learn and you grow and you are uniquely you, um, so it is in God's family. That every one of us is unique. We are all different. Um, and you know that moms, you know this, okay? Imagine, if you will, I mean, maybe some of you had this idea that you lived under this illusion that, that when you became a mother, you thought to yourself, no matter how many children I have, I will treat them all exactly the same. They are like a blank slate, this, this lump of clay that I can mold and shape however I would wish, that every one of them, no matter how many I have, they will all be motivated by the same rewards They will all respond exactly the same to discipline. 
they will, they will um, be diligent in their studies equally, that they will be attracted to the same activities, that, that they're, I'm going to treat them all exactly alike, and they're all going to turn out exactly alike. And then what happens? You have kids. <laughs> and you realize, that, that just whole, that went out the window. You know, because every one of them is unique. I, it, on our family growing up, I will tell you, I am the consummate. I am the poster child for strong-willed children, Okay. I, I can tell you, I got, I was a firstborn, four kids in our family. I got more spankings than all the other three combined, okay? Uh, just a different personality. It's kind of personality that makes for great pastors, by the way. No. Um, but in the same way that it is in our natural families that, that, that our parents nurture and guide us differently because we are unique and different, so it is in God's family. That every one of us is unique, uniquely designed by God. And we don't always respond to the same things and in the same way. But God's spirit is at work and always available to us. And so in God's family, we need the family. We need the family for our growth. And because when we do that, what happens is that we begin to take on family traits. And every family's got them. And there are certain family traits in God's family. Because God's family is the church. And God's desire and Paul's prayer here is that we would experience all that he has for us individually, but within the context of the church family. So I want to take a look this morning a little bit at these family traits, if you will, of God's family. And the first one is real simple. It's in God's family. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. Jesus could not have been more clear in his invitation. He said, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Anyone who is dissatisfied with life, anyone feeling an emptiness, anyone thirsty for something more, anyone who realizes your life is not all that it should be, come to me. Anyone. And they did. Jesus was the most accepting, welcoming, embracing of any person that ever walked the face of the earth. He welcomed tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He spent time with Samaritans that nobody else would, none, no so, you know, real good Jew would do. He spent time, he, he healed the, the uh, slave of a Roman centurion. He reached out and touched lepers who were the untouchables of their time. No one loved like Jesus loved. And people flocked to him by the hundreds and the thousands. And then, just before his death, he gave him these words. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, understand, he gave these words to, to the 12 hand-picked disciples of his. Okay? And he did not pick these guys because of their great prowess. Okay? Um, Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were, were notoriously disliked and distrusted in their culture. They were seen as collaborators with the enemy. Thomas was a doubter. Judas was a thief. John and James, the brothers, had a nickname. They were hotheads. Their nickname was the Thunder Brothers. Okay? You can imagine what they did to earn that. Peter, Peter was just this basket load of impulsiveness who once cut off the ear of a, of a soldier. These are the guys that Jesus handpicked, and he didn't handpick them because they all had the same Myers-Briggs temperament personal profile, you know? <laughs> Not because they got along so well with each other. He chose them because he wanted people to see, this is what my family looks like. A lot of misfits. But everybody's welcome. 
And then when he says to them, now love one another, a new command I give you, love one another. That is not a new command. That command has been around since, since the beginning. It is, it, is the, it is part of the single greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody knows that command. Why is this new? Here's how it's new. It's new with the Jesus factor. As I have loved you, you must love one another. In the way that I reached out to the untouchables, you reach out to the untouchables. In the way that I welcome those who nobody else welcomes, you welcome them. As I have loved you, so you love one another. And in fact, he went on and said, it is by this that they will know that you are my disciples. This is the single distinguishing family trait in Jesus' family, love. He said, I don't expect you to be the smartest. I don't expect you to be the richest. I don't expect you to be the most successful or even theologically accurate. What I want from you is that you would be the most loving group of people this world has ever seen. That is a family trait of my family. And it is by this, he said, that people will know that you're my followers, that you love one another. And so Paul comes along years later and he writes this letter to the Ephesian church and his prayer for them is this I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ this is my prayer for you that you would be rooted and established in love now love is not squishy feelings okay love is not the warm fuzzy emotions love is solid He said that you'd be rooted and established in love. That this is something solid. This kind of love, the love I'm talking about, it's it's family love. It's family love that even when you're having an argument with your spouse, you still love each other. And even when your kids are fighting and arguing and hitting each other, you love each other. Okay? It's that hang in there kind of love that says no matter what, we are committed because we are family. That's the love I want you to be rooted and established in. Because that's the distinguishing characteristic of God's family. And life flourishes. Life thrives on that kind of love. John Ortberg writes about it in his book. He cites a, a science um, um, experiment that was done by Donald Winnicott in Britain. He said, British scientist Donald Winnicott found that, when children, that children who play in close proximity to their mother are more creative than children playing at a distance from her. Winnicott found that children are naturally inventive, curious, and more likely to take risks in what might be called the circle of connectedness. When they are within this circle, they take more risks. They show more energy. If they fall down, they are more likely to get back up. They laugh more than children who are outside the circle. Why? It is not that mom is doing for the child what the child could do for himself. She's not solving problems for this little kid or generating ideas on how he ought to play. Instead, when love is present, when that child feels safe and cared for in her presence, something gets released in his life. He gets a little stronger. He gets bolder and more creative. Love releases life in that child that would otherwise remain dormant and unsummoned. When you are loved, it is not just that you receive more from someone else, It is also that you become more yourself. Love brings the power to become the me I want to be. Loving people are literally life givers. There is something powerful in a parent's love. 
And that principle carries over into the family of Christ. There is something powerful that happens when the church loves one another. When everyone is welcome. Life flourishes. Life thrives. Your spirits are renewed. Your soul is strengthened and encouraged when we know that everyone is welcome, that everyone is loved by God, that I am loved by God. And when we show that to one another in his family, we flourish together. And by the way, that is not just when we enter the doors of this room or walk onto the campus that we're at, okay? It has nothing to do with that. In fact, it's how do you show that love on the job, in the classroom, in your neighborhood, in your home, on the little league field. See, when people look at your face, what did they see? When you interact with people, what do they take away? Do they come away with this sense that I'm loved, I'm welcomed, somebody's interested in me? Because in God's family, everybody's welcome. It is one of his family traits. And not only that, that in God's family, nobody's perfect. Now, isn't that a good thought? Nobody's perfect. We all have faults, we all have our failings. We are all in need of forgiveness. That's why Paul goes on and he writes this word. He says, I pray that you would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He says, I want you to get the full dimension, the enormous dimensions of Christ's love, that it is wide enough to embrace everyone, that it is long enough to last for eternity, that it is deep enough to reach us at our lowest points and high enough to lead us into Christ's presence. That's the love of Christ. That you would understand the enormous dimensions of all of that. Or think of it this way. Think of the cross. That there is a vertical post that links heaven and earth. And in the middle of that, there was a cross beam where Jesus' hands were nailed wide open. It's an act of wide-open acceptance and love. That, that's my church, where everyone's welcome, and nobody's perfect. And he says, I pray that you would grasp that. To grasp that means to take it into your being, to make it the key principle and core principle of your life, to let it get down deep inside of you and, and appropriate it and personalize it and understand this is how I am saved. This is how I live. That, that, that on, the, on the ground at the foot of the cross, it is level. We are all the same. No one is perfect. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. And we are to treat one another with grace. And we all need that. You see, I don't know about you, but I live under this illusion that I would be a much more loving person if God would just put more loving people in my life, you know? More easy to love, more lovable people. If I had more lovable people in my life, I'd be a much more loving person. I live with that illusion, but that's not how it works. In fact, what God does is he puts people just the opposite. Rick Warren calls them EGRs, extra grace required, okay? These are the people who get on your nerves. They are draining to you. They seem to be always negative. They're irritating. They are difficult people. Does anybody in this room know anyone like that? Raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, raise them up. Hold them up. Okay, okay. Be honest. Be honest. It's okay. True confessions here. How many know one of those kind of people in your church family? 
Be honest. Yeah, well, yeah, come on. <laughs> Who are you kidding? How many sitting next to one? No, don't put your hand up. <laughs> Would it surprise you? Would it surprise you to know that you are somebody else's extra grace required person? Yeah, well, not me. I'm talking about you guys. Because those are the people God puts in our life. And he does so for a purpose and for a reason. That we would learn to accept one another. Everybody's welcome. And nobody's perfect. So there's no room to feel superior to anybody else. Because we are all at different places in this journey. But we are a family. And so we are here to encourage and to help each other. Because all of us have issues. All of us do. We all wrestle with issues. They're not all the same. Because what might be a, 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 a difficulty for me, a struggle point in my life, is not one for you, but you've got yours. And I look at that and say, how can that be a problem for you? Because it's not a problem for me. It's different for every one of us, but we've all got them. And sometimes they are the very other side of our greatest strengths. I don't know how, if you've been reading through this book together in your devotional time, but he talks about the different personality types. And I read one of them And it was just like, as I read it, it just popped out at me. It's called the achiever, okay? The achiever, the achiever is the one who loves to lead people. He's energized to stand up. When public speaking would frighten everybody else, they love, they get energized by standing in front of a crowd. They like to take on great challenges and lead people through wonderful things. They want to make a difference in the world. That's an achiever. They make great pastors. But there's a downside. Because they love so much leading people, and this is where it hit me, they become very, very susceptible to other people's opinions of them. They take it personally when someone says something negative. They start, there's a chance and a potential to live for the applause of other people, to be successful in front of other people. And I'll be honest with you this morning. That is probably my greatest struggle. It's what makes me uniquely me. And God has done some things to show me that. <laughs> and he is still showing me that. But you see, we've all got them. We've all got them. They're different, but we've all got them because none of us is perfect. And what we're here for as a family is to help one another and to encourage one another and to strengthen one another, not to just judge one another. Jesus said this way, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now let me say something about that verse because that is so often misused. Because if anybody mentions anything that might be a sin in your life, people say things like, well, don't judge me. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. The judgment he's talking about is the condemning judgment that that puts somebody down instead of encouraging and helping them towards healing. He says, don't do that. Instead, he says, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. You see, it's important in the church family that we all need discipline, and we all need those things pointed out to us because we've got those blind spots. So we need to be able to name sin and recognize its destructive effect on our lives, on our souls, on our inner beings. 
We need to be able to name sin and then speak truthfully with each other and confess together. Nobody's perfect so that we might be healed, so that we would find mercy and forgiveness. Because in God's family, everybody's welcome and nobody's perfect. And in God's family, anything's possible. Anything's possible because God is always at work. His spirit is always flowing, always available, always transforming lives from the inside out. That's what Paul writes about. His prayer is that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That is the exact thing that Jesus promised when he said, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and believe in me and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It's the very same promise that Jesus said. If you will believe in me, if you will put your trust in me, my spirit will come and indwell you and it will change you so much that out will, what will flow out of you is love and mercy and grace. Anyone. Anyone. And so Peter, who is this basket load of impulsiveness, actually becomes the rock that Jesus said he would be. And a wealthy man named Joseph sells what he has in the early church to meet the needs of the people in the church family. And it is such a thing that people look at him and they give him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And a zealot, a self-righteous zealot named Saul, who goes around arresting and persecuting and trying to kill Christians, now becomes the missionary of Christianity to the Gentile world. That's what happens when God's spirit flows. Lives are transformed. And that's the kind of church I want us to be. Where everybody is welcome. And nobody's perfect. But anything is possible. Because his spirit is at work. Because when his spirit flows, when the Holy Spirit flows, and we allow his love and his mercy and his grace to wash over our souls, little by little we are changed. We become a little less selfish and a little more giving. We become a little less judgmental, a little more merciful. We become a little less prideful and a little more forgiving. I want to read you. Um, one of our church family wrote this, sent it to me. One of, part of his story. He said, many years ago, a group of people made an irreversible decision that permanently affected my life and the lives of the people I cared about. They did this without our knowledge or consent. Despite much effort and prayer to try and understand and empathize with their motives, I could not escape the fact that these people had acted wrongly, that they had imposed their will on us in order to further their own agendas and that we would have to live with the consequences of their actions. These people were not Christians, so obeying Christ's command to approach them about their sin would have been meaningless. My anger toward these people continued to grow until it became my constant companion. Hardly an hour would pass without me remembering what they had done, and that anger evolved into a hatred over the coming months and years. I knew that I had to forgive these people, but I didn't know how. And then one day, I read a very familiar passage in the Bible, and it transformed me. 
The passage is Luke 6, 29 through 35, where Christ says, If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others what you would have them do to you. If you love those that love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those to who, from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. What transformed me within this passage was the realization that God is kind. He is not only kind to kind people. He is inherently kind. He remains kind even when confronted by wicked people. Wicked people don't change him. And because I am called to reflect God's image, I must also be kind by nature to all people, even my wicked enemies. I had to transform my mind from a state of anger and hatred toward these people to one of love. This was such a daunting task that I decided to take it in bite-sized chunks. So I began each day with this prayer. Lord, I may curse them for the rest of the day, but between now and noon, every time these people come to mind, I will pray blessings on them. And I actually did. I prayed in detail that God would keep them and their loved ones safe and healthy all day. That he would give them a good and productive day at work, getting more accomplished than they expected. And that their children would be a joy to them that evening. I prayed that if they did not have love in their lives, that God would bring them a good and loving soulmate. I prayed that when they went to bed that night, they would pause to realize that they inexplicably had a very good and fulfilling day. Eventually, I was able to extend the length of that blessing from noon to the afternoon and then to the entire day praying, Lord, I may curse them tomorrow, but today, (laughs) every time these people come to my mind, I will pray blessings on them. Soon, I was able to go several days before needing to invoke these blessings of prayers of blessing. And eventually, I only needed to make these prayers sporadically. I cannot say that I ever came to feel love for these people. Their actions were wicked, but I changed. I learned not to allow wicked people to make me wicked, but rather to remain kind toward all people, just as my heavenly Father is kind to everyone, including wicked people. It's been years since I've struggled with anger towards these people, and I've largely forgotten about them. But on those rare occasions when our paths cross and that old anger begins to fire up, I just go back to the prayer blessing, and then I'm good for another year or so. (laughs) But that's how it happens. Little by little, as we learn to live in the flow of the Holy Spirit, He changes us. And I become more aware of and more interested in and more caring and more responsible about other people. Like Paul wrote to the Philippian church, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And when God's family becomes a family that is accepting and welcoming, 
And when God's family lives as a place of forgiveness where nobody is perfect, then in God's family, it becomes a family of hope. Because now I can change. Because I don't have to pretend to be something else. I, don't, I can do away with evaluating and comparing myself to somebody else. I can just be who I am right now and know that God is still at work and I'm not done yet. And that gives me hope. Because in God's family, anything's possible. And I begin to realize that what God wants is not this, this little compartment over here that I call my spiritual life. Or I call my devotional life. And I live with this fear that if I don't spend at least a half hour of quiet time, that somehow God's going to cut his love off from me. Because God doesn't sit up in heaven and say, oh, you only did 20 minutes of quiet time, so I will adjust my love to you based on that. I begin to look at my whole life. Not just what I call my spiritual life. Because God's not interested in that. What he's interested in is my whole life. Becoming who it is he created me to be. And that sometimes it means going without a quiet time. One of our, members, one of our small group members, we were going through this, and he was talk, um, talking about this in the book, that, um, that, that a mother of three preschoolers would love to have a quiet time. <laughs> But he said, maybe, just maybe, loving your three preschoolers counts in God's economy. That it's not just having a quiet time. It's about loving your family. And maybe that's more important than anything else for that day. See how liberating that becomes? When we begin to understand that in God's family, everybody's welcome. And nobody's perfect, but... In God's family, anything is possible. I want us to be that kind of family. That is my prayer for this church, where everyone's welcome, and nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. And Paul ends his prayer this way. So now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in his family, the church. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.